that baby just makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> I've never at any point in my life been that flexible. That's, uh, that, was, that was alarming. Also, it's got to be terrifying to be the parents to figure that out for the first time. We're like, what is he doing? Oh my goodness, that's incredible. <laughs> any, uh, any fans of the Olympics? Any people enjoy the Olympics out there? Anybody like the Olympics? All right. I, I like the Olympics. I'm, I prefer summer over winter, but I am a big fan of the Olympics. But my wife loves the Olympics. When the Olympics are on, that is literally all we can watch. Nothing but the Olympics. And I'm fine with that because I love sports and I like the... The, the Olympics are compelling because of the stories, but after like the fourth night of figure skating, I'm like, I am out. This is, I can't do it anymore. But the Olympics are compelling because of the stories they tell. When we hear about people who've overcome these incredible odds or these, achieving these incredible things, we find that stuff compelling. There's a guy, a British sprinter named Derek Redman. He held the British record in the 400 meters. He was a gold medalist in the 4x400 relay at the 1986 European Championships and at the 1986 Commonwealth Games. He missed the 1988 Olympics in Seoul because of an injury. And so in 1992 at the Olympic Games in Barcelona, that's his last shot for Olympic gold. I mean, this guy is legitimately good. I mean, he's in the conversation for Olympic gold. That's a legitimate dream. And the games start off well. He, he wins his quarterfinal race. And he gets lined up for a semifinal race. He takes off and he's doing well. And midway through the race, he tears his hamstring in one cataclysmic moment. And he collapses to the track in agony and in devastation that his dream is over. I can't imagine what that's got to be like laying there in this terrible pain in front of all these people knowing that what you've worked your life for is not going to happen. And as he's laying there on the track, as he talks about it, he says he remembered that he made a promise to his father that he would finish the race, he'd complete it. And he remembered where he was. He remembered that he's out on the track in the Olympic Games, and so he stands up, and he kind of pushes off help, and he starts hobbling his way to the finish line. That's incredible. Because if that was me, and I tore my hamstring, I'm not ever moving again, ever. <laughs> like, I can't imagine experiencing that kind of pain. Like, when I get a cramp, it's like, I'm out. I just, I'm good. You need some ice. But this guy's like, no, I'm going to finish. And he gets up, and he starts hobbling, really, on one leg. Can't even move his other, his other leg. And he's hobbling towards the finish line. And it's taken forever. And he's just focused on finishing this. And he hears a voice come, come up alongside him, and he recognizes immediately in that moment that it's his father. His father has come out of the stands to put his arm around him and help him to the finish line. And it's only when he crosses that he realizes that the entire stadium is on its feet cheering him on because of this incredible, extraordinary display of commitment. That's amazing. He was so focused on his task at hand. He was so committed to his goal that it did not matter what got in his way. He was going to accomplish it. It did not matter. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty extraordinary. And we're starting this series for the next several weeks called Extraordinary. And it's the idea that when God enters into our story, the ordinary doesn't stay ordinary for very long because God makes ordinary extraordinary. That's what his specialty is. He makes that stuff happen. And it's going to be focused on the life of a guy named Elisha. So I want to give you a little background 
on who Elisha is in the context of it, so we kind of know what we're talking about. So this story takes place in First and Second Kings, which are books in the Old Testament, in the first part of your Bible. And the background is that God has made a promise with Israel, a promise with His people, He's made a covenant. And a covenant is really, it's a, it's a serious promise. It's, a, it's like a blood oath. And God has said that I will be your God and you'll be my people, that I'll care for you, and you will, as, as long as you obey me. And they have this covenant relationship set up. And all they need to do is obey Him. But they don't. Because they're people, and they're human, and we get that at a, at a core level, we're very prone to go, well, I'm going to do this my own way. And they're seduced by Baal, who's one of these Canaanite gods, and Canaanites were the people that live there. They're seduced by the worship of these other gods. It's like, they're not totally abandoning God, but they're just adding other stuff in, and they're like, well, that looks fine, so let's pull that in too. But that's a problem for God. And so God sent Elijah, a man named Elijah, to be his prophet, to speak his message to his people, to remind them of who he is, to call them to obedience. That's this guy, Elijah. And in 1 Kings 18, which is right before where we're going to start today, there's a huge confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal in front of the people of Israel where God wins a resounding and overwhelming victory, where God shows up and he kicks butt and he takes names and it's really impressive. But immediately after this victory, Elijah finds out that the wife of the king wants him dead. He gets a death threat and she's like, if you're not dead by tomorrow then may this happen to me. And it's pretty serious. And he leaves, and he is incredibly discouraged, and he feels alone, and he's looking around going, where is everybody? It's just me. I'm the only one left that's faithful. And God meets him in that moment, and he speaks to him. And he encourages him in his mission. He recommissions Elijah as a prophet, and he tells him to go find his successor. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, read with me here. It says, so Elijah went and found Elisha. Now let me just say first, yes. Yes, they're remarkably similar. <laughs> Is that confusing for their friends? Yes, almost certainly. Hey, Elisha, what did you call me? No, no, Elisha, not Elijah. Oh, my fault. I thought you said Elisha, not Elijah. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah, you're not, you're not crazy. They are very similar. So he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field. This is where Elijah was told to go find him. And Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and he threw his cloak across his shoulders. And then he walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye. And then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen, he slaughtered them, he used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh, he passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate, and then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So we're going to talk about the idea of extraordinary commitment through the life of Elisha, and what's called, this is really called the, the calling of Elisha. First thing that's significant here is that Elisha recognized God's call. Elisha recognized God's call. He recognized that there was something significant and something different about this moment. Because Elijah goes out and he finds Elisha working in the fields. All right, I'm going to show you a picture of what this would look like. He's out there and he's got this, his 12 uh, pairs of ox, or 12 oxen, 12 yoke of oxen out there. That's obviously just, it's not 12, but 
They have these wooden uh, yokes on them that are holding them together, hooked up to a plow that's tilling this field. This is hard work, but he's out there getting this ready. And what we know because there's 12 is that he's probably from a wealthy family and that there was probably a communal aspect to this because probably the community got together and brought their team of oxen together to join forces to plow this field together. That's why Elisha was walking with the 12th pair because that was probably his pair. But these oxen are out there and they're plowing this field and Elijah walks up to him and he throws his cloak over his shoulders and then he walks away. That's interesting. It's an interesting way to, to approach that, that God has challenged Elisha, has tasked Elijah with anointing his successor, with calling Elisha to, to be a prophet. And so Elijah does that by throwing his cloak around his shoulders and walking away. Well, what's that mean? Because that doesn't mean the same thing for us as it means in this context. Well, that's a powerful symbol. The cloak here is a representation of the prophetic calling that's been put on Elijah's life. It's a symbol of that. It's him giving it to Elijah symbolizes his call to, to a life of a prophet as well and sort of the transference of this call, of this mission. It symbolizes the passing of the torch from Elijah to Elisha. That just as God empowered Elijah, so he will also empower Elisha. And this cloak is a powerful symbol of God's spiritual power because it's going to be used later on to perform miracles. And so as he gives him the cloak, what he's saying is, it's your time. You're next. And so how does he respond to that? Well, he seems to know what it means. He seems to understand in that moment because he follows them. He leaves his oxen standing right there, and he goes and he follows after Elijah. And he says, hey, first, let me go home and say goodbye to my parents. Really, he says, first, let me go home and kiss my father and mother. And that sounds like a reasonable request. All right, let me go and say goodbye and, and set my affairs in order and move on. What's interesting is the Hebrew word for kiss is used only in two verses in First and Second Kings. It's used here in this verse, and it's used in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. And in verse 20 it says, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will show you. And I think what's, what's interesting and what's purposeful about using that word kiss is that it, it shows devotion and commitment. Right? Elisha shows devotion and commitment to his parents by going home and kissing them goodbye. But he also joins in the 7,000 that are faithful, who are committed and devoted to God, who have not kissed Baal. So it shows this commitment. And Elisha, Elijah replies to him and says, go back, but think about what I've done to you. And really, he really asks it as a question. He really asks it as a question. He's, Would it be better translated, go back again, for what have I done to you? The reason that's significant is that question shifts the onus back onto Elisha. That Elijah is saying, I've not come to convince you. I've not come to manipulate you. I've not come to make you do anything. Frankly, I'm not here making you do anything. That God is the one calling you. It's not me. God is the one who has this desire for you. It's not me. God is calling Elisha to follow him. Do you recognize that God is calling you? Do you recognize that God is calling you? Because we know from Scripture that God loves people, that God created people, that God 
moves towards people. That's the story of the Bible, is God's movement back towards people, that God wants people to know Him. Do you recognize that God is calling you in a similar way? Second thing that Elisha does that's significant here is that Elisha responded to God's call. He responded to God's call. This is significant because this is the rubber meets the road moment for Elisha. What's he going to do? He could go home. He could say he wants to go home to kiss his parents goodbye because he wants to avoid this responsibility. Say, hey, it's the kind of thing. It's like, hey, I'm just going to go like, say goodbye to my parents and then he just leaves and never shows up again. Like, he could do that. He could run away. He could say, I don't, I don't really want to, you know, maybe I'll come in a year or I'm not interested in doing that at all. What's his response going to be? What's his response going to be? Well, we see the state of his heart by his actions here because Elisha, he takes his pair of oxen and he sacrifices them to God. He takes the plow and he tears it apart and he builds a fire with it and he cooks up this meat and he shares it with, the, with his community. This guy's a good friend. Steak for everyone. But it's powerful in what that symbolizes. Because what's he doing in that moment? He's getting rid of his old life. He's not leaving himself a way out. He's burning those bridges. He's saying, I, I'm not allowing myself the opportunity to go backwards. There's no way out but forward. He's not leaving a safety net. He's not leaving a plan B. He demonstrated his commitment to God by getting rid of his old life. That is incredible commitment. It's incredible commitment. And this passage tells us that he went with Elijah as his assistant right then. He went. He left right then. And I find that fascinating because he's clearly been called by God to do something significant, but he doesn't feel like he's arrived. He doesn't feel like he knows it all. He doesn't feel like he's ready because we know he goes as Elijah's assistant. He goes to learn. He goes to serve. He's following someone else. It's a powerful example. He doesn't assume that he's ready. He goes to learn more, but he goes right then. That kind of extraordinary commitment is really hard. It's really hard. It's hard to sell ourselves on that being worth it. It's hard to sell ourselves on that being something that we would like to do. I think the vast majority of people like the idea that there's a God that knows them and cares for them. We like the idea that there's something bigger than us, that there's someone looking out for us. We like that. We like that there's someone who can make things better for us. That's appealing. People like that idea. Few people get upset or angry about the idea that, a God, that there's a God that loves them. You don't always hear a lot of pushback on that. You know, how dare you say there's a God that loves me? Where do you get off? Loves me. Psh. Like, that's not what people argue about. What we struggle with is really the next part of that idea, which is that God wants us to respond to that love. God wants us to respond to that love. That responding means doing something we may not want to do. We like the idea of a loving God as long as we can add Him into our lives without really having to change anything. We don't like the idea of giving control over to someone else. That, that part's not super appealing. We think we know what's best. We think we know what we need. We think we're the expert on our own lives. We think we know. We think we know. 
You heard me talk a couple weeks ago about when I hurt my knee, and I ended up having three knee surgeries on one knee. And a couple years ago, I'm playing basketball, and I feel this little pinch in my left knee, which is like my good knee at that point. Come on, good knee. And so I go see the doctor, and I have to go get an MRI. Anybody had an MRI? Uh, it's a machine that is designed to look inside your body while also terrifying you with these horrible loud noises. It's like here, you can't, you can't move at all, and also, uh, don't be alarmed, it's going to be loud, and every couple seconds you're going to hear, <laughs> it's like, good, I wasn't stressed enough, no, that's wonderful. And so I get this MRI, and I give me a CD, and I go home, and I look at it, I pull it up on the computer, and I show Bethany, I was like, oh man, if you look right here, I think you can see this is my torn ACL right here, and then over here, this is my healthy PCL, I'm like, ah, oh, that stinks. So I have an appointment with a doctor, and I go in and meet with him, and he, I give him this, and he's like, so did you take a look at this? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I looked at it. And he pulls it up, and he starts showing me. And I, I was just about to say, here's what I saw. And then he cut me off, and he's like, well, over here, you see, this is your healthy uh, PCL, what, what I had pointed out as my torn ACL. And then he's like, and over here is your uh, torn ACL. And that's what I had told Bethany was my healthy PCL. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, that's totally, that's totally what I saw, too. It's like the same exact thing was what I saw. That's crazy. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea. Like, I have showed people this, like, I, like I'm an expert. I don't know. I thought I knew, but I don't know. And that's true of our lives. We think we know, but we don't. We don't. What Elisha shows us here, though, is you don't have to know fully in order to obey. You don't have to fully understand. You don't have to fully comprehend in order to obey. That obedience is in a willingness to not fully comprehend, but believe that God knows what he's doing, that God knows what he's talking about, that God knows better, that God cares about me, that what I'm being called to leave is overshadowed by the infinite greatness of what I am called to pursue. What Elisha shows us, you don't have to fully know or understand in order to obey. How are you responding to God's movement in your life? How are you responding to God's movement in your life? Because this idea of being called to respond is not a new concept in the Bible. We see this throughout Scripture. Jesus talked about it a lot. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this, Another said, Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. There's a direct correlation to what Elisha was going through. And it's not this idea that you can't care about anything, but it's saying what matters most? What is most important to you? Because someone that looks back to take care of their field is, is trying to make their own way and protect their own life and find their own success and their own meaning and their own purpose. They're saying, I, I got to control this part of it. I can't fully let go. I still got to do, do this thing over here. And Jesus is saying, not hate your family, not ignore them, but what comes first? What is most important? What is most important? Is it your family? Is it your fields? Or is it knowing and following me? He goes on to say this in Luke 14. He says, if you want to be my disciple, then you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Hate your father and mother, your wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying here you should actually hate those people? No. 
So if you're sitting there thinking like, all right, I've been right the whole time. I hate everybody. <laughs> no, no, you're wrong and that's terrible, no. Because that's at, directly at odds with other scripture that says honor your father and mother. The point is not that you're to actually hate them. The point is that we are to live a life that says that following Jesus is first above everything. Above everything. That we need to functionally live like these things matter less. It doesn't mean they don't matter at all, but it means they matter less than following him. These verses, this truth forces us to ask ourselves a hard question. Are we actually all in? Or do we just talk about it? Are we actually committed to Jesus? Or do we just talk about it? That's hard. It's hard to be honest with ourselves that way. Because that kind of commitment is hard. But that kind of commitment is worth it. There are two missionaries living in a closed country, a country where they're not allowed to be open about what they're doing. And it's a husband and wife, and they're driving somewhere, and they have to stop at a gas station to get gas. As they're pulling in, they see a man off to the side, a very scary-looking man, who's holding an AK-47 and has a bandolier of bullets strapped across his chest. And this couple is nervous. And so they're sitting there, they're filling up. When the wife turns to the husband and says, I feel like God is telling me we need to give that man a Bible. And the husband says, are you kidding me? Do you see that man? And she's like, I'm telling you, I feel like God is telling me we need to give this guy a Bible. And he's like, he could kill me right now. Like, do you get how serious this is? He could shoot me and no one would care. He's like, we are not doing that. And they fill up and they start to pull away and the wife starts to pray, Father, Father God, Please forgive my husband for his lack of faith and his unwillingness to trust you. And the husband's like, oh, fine. And they turn around and they go back to the gas station and he takes the Bible and he walks over to the guy and he hands it to him and he walks away and he's expecting to be shot in the back right there. And he hears a thud and he turns around and the man has fallen to his face on the ground. And as they start talking, he says, I had a dream that I was supposed to come here to this gas station and stand here on this day because someone would come and give me the book of life. That's incredible commitment. The willingness that couple showed to say, we are committed to Jesus first. Not even to our own lives, but committed to Jesus first. I mean, think... Think of how incredible that story is and the impact that made in that guy's life. But maybe you're thinking, well, that's, yeah, that's great, and that's, a, that's an amazing story, but, you know, that's not me. I mean, I don't live there, and that's not going to happen to me. I don't know what to do with that. All right. I have a friend. There's more to this story. It's not just I have a friend. We, I, have a, I do have a friend. And I've known him for a long time, and I, and I knew him when he gave his life to Jesus, and he started to really change, and his family was not supportive of that. They're not fans of that, and they'll kind of poke on him and make fun of him and, and jab him with stuff, and he's made the commitment to love them and to live out his faith in a transparent way, even though it will cost him something, even though his family will, will poke on him and will make it an issue 
and they don't agree with him, and they don't like it. And it, it creates tension in his life. It creates tension in his relationships. It, it is an issue, but when, I was so incredibly proud of him and impressed when he said, I'm committed to do this for my family. This is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I love them, and I'm committed to living this way in front of them, even when it hurts. That's extraordinary commitment. That's someone who says, this matters most. And I need to live this out. This is the most important thing. Because that's commitment. Commitment means pursuing what matters most first. Not second or third or fifth or somewhere in the top 20, but first. Extraordinary commitment costs you something, but what you gain is infinitely more valuable than what you lose. And folks, God doesn't ask anything of us that he has not already demonstrated himself and made possible for us. God showed his extraordinary commitment to us by sending his son to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus showed his extraordinary commitment by willingly laying down his life in obedience to his father as a sacrifice for us. Our extraordinary commitment is only possible because of Jesus' extraordinary commitment. And when we commit ourselves to Jesus, he makes the ordinary extraordinary. A couple things for you to take away as, as we leave, some practical things to think about. What Elisha did so well in, in committing himself to this was he committed himself to be three things. He committed himself first to be a follower. He committed himself to be a follower. He didn't give himself an easy out. He committed himself above all else to God, even above family, above his job, above his profession, above his possessions. He committed himself to God first. What would it look like for you to commit yourself to be a follower? What would it look like for you this week? What habit, what behavior, what thing in your life do you need to surrender? What would it look like for you to pursue Jesus as the most important thing? What would it look like? Elisha also committed himself to be a servant. He committed himself to be a servant. He looked to care for and meet the needs of others. His commitment to God benefited others. When he sacrificed these oxen to God, he then cooked them and gave it to his community. He went with Elisha to serve him. What would it look like for you to commit yourself to being a servant? What would it look like? What would it look like for you to invest your time and your energy and your finances in others? What would it look like? That's how people recognize commitment, extraordinary commitment. That's how people see faith in us. That's how people see Jesus in us. When we live radically different, when we look to love others the way that we've been loved, what would it look like for you to commit yourself this week to being a servant? <coughs> Lastly, Elijah, Elisha committed himself to being a learner. He looked to learn. He didn't assume he knew everything. He didn't act like he was, had arrived. He didn't act like he was ready. He submitted himself to Elijah to go and watch his example. He went to assist and to learn and to grow. What would it look like for you to commit yourself to being a learner? What would it look like? What would it look like for you to pursue intentional relationships? What would it look like to be part of a life group? What would it look like for you to spend time with God in order to learn more about Him? 
What would it look like to go to the phase event, to grow and to learn as a parent? What would it look like for you to commit yourself to being a learner? Folks, we are loved this way, that God pursues us just like Elisha was pursued. We are loved this way. Extraordinary commitment to God is possible because God has committed himself to us. The challenge for us really is, are we willing to give up what we need to give up in order to put God first? Are we willing to? Are we shoving God into a corner of our life? Are we adding him to what we already do? Or are we willing to put him first? Because Elisha's life is extraordinary because he made this commitment right here. Elisha performed the second most miracles in the Bible after Jesus. And I believe that that extraordinary was, was possible because he committed himself. He said, God, you first. You first. 